We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And I'm eager to continue our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8 this morning. So go ahead and turn, uh, turn there in your, in your Bible. And while you do, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. So let's pray. Our triune God, we need you this morning. Father, we need to feel your paternal affection for us. Lord Jesus, we need direction from our good shepherd. Holy Spirit, we need your comforting, convicting, enlightening presence. We are beggars, desperate for you. Oh, Spirit, we wish to see Jesus this morning. So please, bless the preaching of your word in his name. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if Solomon were a singer-songwriter... And if the book of Ecclesiastes were one of his albums, it wouldn't be a greatest hits record. So much of the book of Proverbs might be be like that, might be like a greatest hits record where uh, you have so many of the hits, so many of the classics that are there that you can pick up and listen to and benefit from and enjoy without paying super close attention to what comes before or what comes after. Much of the book of Proverbs is like that, but not so with the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if Ecclesiastes is an album, it's more like a concept album where each part fits in together with the whole. So you have a certain theme that shows up in the beginning and it's a thread that ties its way all the way through to the rest of the album. This means that some sections may or may not be able to stand uh, on their own. Some songs may be Uh, hits on on their own, but maybe not. Most often, they are understood only when they're understood in relation to the whole. Some parts of this book cause despair, but they are intended to cause a temporary despair that isn't rightly understood unless it's considered in relation to the book's conclusion, which doesn't end in despair. Or to take another analogy, it's like a good musical where you are introduced in the very beginning to the overture. And that introduction becomes a thread that ties the whole thing together. So when you think about the musical Hamilton, certain phrases and themes and melodies repeat themselves throughout. Not throwing away my shot. Never be satisfied. Running out of time. And as these phrases repeat throughout the musical, they compound their meaning. And then later repetitions cast light on previous ones to reveal that they were actually foreshadows of later events. And so you don't really understand the phrase, not throwing away my shot, and its fullest meaning until the very end. You don't really get the full weight until the very end. The parts are understood in relation to the whole. I say all that as an explanation of sorts for the repetition you have surely recognized by now in this series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Why do we keep repeating ourselves? Why do the pastors keep emphasizing the same 
overarching point of this book. Three reasons. First of all, as we'll see today, Solomon repeats himself over and over again. And we're committed to preaching what's here. And so if he repeats himself, we're going to repeat himself. But second, if we don't, if we don't keep the overarching idea of this book in our minds, we will severely misunderstand so many key portions of this book. So remember what the overarching idea is. The idea is, if all that exists is that which is under the sun, then all of the vanity and vapor of this life is nothing but cause for despair. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then there is no conclusion to life but despair. But if there is a good and sovereign God over the sun, then everything, including the vanity and the vapor, is a gift. That's the overarching point. And some of the texts in our series only communicate the first part of that thesis. Some of the texts in our series end in despair. This passage that we're reading today ends in a question mark, but the book doesn't. So interestingly enough, if we leave things off with the passage that we're preaching without telling you where it's going eventually, we can actually misrepresent the passage itself. So that's the second reason we repeat ourselves. We repeat ourselves in order to do the book justice. But third and finally, and this one's a little bit more personal, we repeat ourselves because we need to be reminded. Why do we keep repeating the same thing? Because we need to be reminded of the same thing. So put it this way, why do we stop? Uh, we can stop warning ourselves of finding security and fleeting things when we stop trying to find security and fleeting things. We can stop reminding ourselves to be grateful when we stop being so ungrateful. We can stop reminding ourselves that God is above the sun when we stop acting like he isn't. So this passage has a striking resemblance to the last passage that I preached when I was standing behind this pulpit in chapter two. So I'm not just recycling an old sermon. I'm repeating myself because the text is reminding us of the same thing that that text reminded us of. It issues this stark warning. The warning is this. Beware of finding security in anything under the sun. To be under the sun is to be fleeting, to be changing, which means no security is found there. You can't find security in something that is always going away, passing away. And yet this text also offers us an invitation. It offers us a warning, and it also offers us an invitation. And the invitation is this. Find your security above the sun, above all the shifting uh, shadows of this world. Find your security above the sun, and then everything under the sun becomes a gift. So let's let Ecclesiastes teach us this lesson. Go ahead and look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. These are the words of God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor, the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So there's no lasting security in human earthly authorities. This passage hearkens us back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are 
done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. That's what Solomon sees when he looks out at this world. And now he says in chapter 5, verse 8, this shouldn't be a shocker to you. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. Where you find authority, there you will find opportunities for oppression. Where you find authority, there you will find power. And where you find power, you will find the opportunity for the abuse of power. Now, we can and should appeal to higher authorities when we are under oppression, but what happens when those authorities are also corrupt and the authorities above them are also corrupt and the authorities above then and on and on we go? Above the sun, there is always someone else in charge and that someone else has the capacity for corruption, which means There is no ultimate security to be found in any earthly authority. Earthly authority is fickle. All of them are under the authority of someone else who may or may not wield their authority justly. However, this passage, even though it is talking about this tragedy of reality under the sun, it it doesn't end in utter pessimism. Look at verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Even in this fallen world, where corruption lies, a threat at the heart of every authority, authorities can still be a blessing. Authority isn't intrinsically evil, right? It is intended to be a blessing for the land. A land still may be blessed by fallen kings. The land will be blessed by the king who recognizes his own limitations. That's what we're talking about here where it says cultivated fields. The commitment to finding which direction the grain of the world goes in and conforming to it rather than insisting that the world conform to him. This is the humble king who recognizes that there are some things that you don't have control over. You plant when it's time to plant. You harvest when it's time to harvest. You're living in God's world. You don't just get to snap your finger and make everything conform to your whims. You recognize that the world functions in a particular way and you go with the grain of creation. That's a good authority. That's a wise king, the authority who recognizes that he himself is under authority, that he's ultimately living in God's world, which functions according to God's design. That king who submits himself to God's way is a blessing to all those under his authority. But he shouldn't have your ultimate trust. That's not where your security is to be found because he is fickle. He's under the sun. Verse 10, the one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So there's no lasting security in authority, we saw. There's also no lasting security in money. In fact, the accumulation of money often introduces the accumulation of stress and burdens. More money, more problems. This is a tragic state of affairs. 
Here's the situation. This happens all the time. A laborer can rest his head on the ground and sleep soundly while a rich man can rest his head on a pillow of cash, so to speak, and be totally restless over it. Totally restless. And this is made doubly tragic for the rich man when you consider what is to become of all of that money that he is losing sleep in order to protect and manage. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. He cannot take any of his wealth with him when he dies. He makes himself miserable, anxious over his resources, so he can't even enjoy them in this life, and then he can't take them into the next. Skip down to chapter 6, verse 1. This point is continued on there. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many lives so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. There are fewer things in this life more tragic than the person who has so many blessings and is yet unable to enjoy any of them. So many blessings without the ability to enjoy it the person who gives his life for the accumulation of finding security and wealth, who endures sleepless nights in his stressful and anxious preservation of wealth, a wealth which he will not be able to take with him into the grave anyway and, and therefore cannot enjoy any of it. Don't be jealous of that person. Don't be, don't be envious of that person. He does not have a good lot. We recognize this person intuitively, don't we? We've been helped along by great writers like Charles Dickens in his classic, The Christmas Carol. This is that protagonist, Ebenezer Scrooge, who sacrifices every relationship and joy in this life in order to accumulate wealth. And by the end of it, he sounds like Solomon's description here. He eats in darkness and much vexation and anger. In Dickens' novel, it was Scrooge's nephew, Fred, who summarizes the point well. He says, his wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried, who suffers by his ill whims himself always. But friends, this sickness of Scrooge's 
was a sickness in his heart long before he ever acquired his wealth. It's a sickness that clutches and covets and envies and ever remains restless and discontent and you don't need to have any money to have that sickness. Don't be deceived. This section of Ecclesiastes does not simply tell the tragedy of the millionaire in his mansion surrounded by wealth and material possessions unable to enjoy any of them. It does tell that tragedy, but it also tells the tragedy of the paycheck-to-paycheck day laborer who looks on with malice and ugly jealousy at the millionaire from his studio apartment, foolishly thinking that he has something that he wants. He wouldn't be happy if he got what the millionaire had, millions and millions without the, the ability to enjoy any of it. It tells the tragedy of the husband and father who is unable to enjoy the unspeakable blessing of a wife and children and instead views them as a burden. It tells the tragedy of the single person who looks with malice and ugly jealousy at his or her married friends. It is a tragedy, dear friends, to receive so much life and yet remain unable to enjoy any of it. And this is a danger for all of us. It's the inability to be grateful for what we have and the desperate attempt to find security in that which is transient and elusive. Verse seven, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what advantage, what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Nothing lasts. Even the satisfaction of food. You curb your hunger and satisfy your appetite, but what will happen just a few short hours later? You'll get hungry again. Nothing lasts. Nothing under the sun intrinsically lasts. To be under the sun is to be a vapor, a shadow, a fleeting moment. And so to imagine that contentment can be found in anything here under the sun is the height of madness. It is folly to imagine that if we just got that under the sun thing that we are so desperate for, we would somehow be content. That's foolish. Whatever it is, a better job, a bigger house, more money, children, a book deal, whatever it is, it won't satisfy. And none of these things are necessarily wrong to pursue in and of themselves. But we are fooling ourselves if we think that our sick, discontented hearts will be healed by getting them. Listen, if we cannot be content with their absence, we won't be content in their presence either. Whatever it is, if you cannot be content with, in that thing's absence, you will not be content when you get it either. So what are we to do? Verse 10 summarizes so much of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the enigma of living under a dying sun. The what are we to do situation. 
It says, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the utter, absolute, exhaustive sovereignty of God. That's what he's talking about. God is the one who has named whatever comes to be. God is the one who is stronger than man. All this hevel, all this vanity, this vaporous fleetingness, all these passing blessings that are here one moment and gone the next, all of them have been prescribed by an inscrutable God. He has prescribed for you to have a whole bunch of things under the sun that none of them will satisfy. That's what he has prescribed. And if we don't know this God, this is a horribly unnerving thought, isn't it? Verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives his few days, the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Under the sun, this is the enigma of life. What's the point? What is good for man to do? What will happen after him? What's permanent? How are we to view all of this under the sun fleetingness? And the answer is, we should find security above the sun. We can't find security in anything under the sun, so we gotta find security above the sun. It was C.S. Lewis who said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. So we find security above the sun. And when we find security in God, and the God who is above the sun, all of this fleeting experience of this life somehow, magically, becomes a gift. Go back to chapter five, verse 18. We skipped this portion earlier. Chapter five, verse 18. This is the key to unlocking joy from this passage. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Gratitude. Gratitude. It's all fleeting. It's all passing away. And God has prepared it for us. God has prepared it. He's given it for us. For those who come to know this God, who come to love him, not only does he give us wealth and struggle, possession and toil, he also gives us power to enjoy it. Remember that lesson that we learned from C.S. Lewis about first and second things several weeks ago. How when you flip your priorities around and you love secondary things in place of primary things, you lose them both. The dog owner who treats her dog like a child does not turn her dog into a child 
And she doesn't even experience the joy of owning a dog anymore. She's tried to turn the dog into something that it's not. The drunkard who flees to alcohol for his ultimate satisfaction not only fails to achieve it, he also misses out on the lesser joy of moderate and God-honoring consumption. The, the doting mother who treats her child as a means to her ultimate happiness not only fails to achieve ultimate happiness, she also misses out on the experience, the lesser joy of rearing children. And in all of these cases, it's the secondary thing that is abused. The dog is robbed of the dignity of dogness. Alcohol is disfigured and perverted, turned from a blessing into an idol. Children either suffer under the soul-crushing disappointment of unhappy parents, or they are made into little tyrants and are robbed of the experience of being raised by parents who train them in godliness. And they're instead used as a means for their parents' vanity. It's an ugly business loving secondary things in the place of primary things. But when our loves are rightly ordered and we worship God above all else, everything else takes its rightful place in our hearts as gifts of divine grace. The wise man who fears God is not sleepless and anxious over the management of his money, however much or little he has. He does not despair when, as Solomon says, he loses it in a bad venture or any such thing. He doesn't despair because he recognizes that it's all from God. It is his lot from God. And it's here when God intends for it to be here and gone when God intends for it to be gone. Loving God first, fearing him above all else, makes it possible for us to read chapter 6, verse 10 as good news instead of unnerving. News. Look at chapter 6, verse 10 with me again, this passage about God's sovereignty, and, and try to read it from the vantage point of knowing this God and loving him. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. <laughs> Nothing can stop God. Remember that uh, what I told you about the secret to joy in this life under the sun a couple of weeks ago, that we must learn to be convinced of two truths. The first truth is this, that God, the God who sits above the sun is utterly, completely, exhaustively sovereign, that he rules and governs everything. That's what this verse tells us. But that's only half the secret to joy in this life. Right? We need the second truth as well. And the second truth is this, that the God who is utterly, completely, comprehensively, exhaustively sovereign is also good and for us. When you combine those two things together, joy. That is the, that is the perfect recipe for joy. We need both of those truths together. If we are convinced that God is utterly sovereign and that he is utterly good and sovereign and for us, then everything we experience in this fleeting under the sun life is prepackaged from God to us. That means the good we experience is a temporary blessing that God has given for us to enjoy right now. He's got our name written on it. He wants us to enjoy it. Not later, now. It's like manna. It will rot if you try to keep it forever. So enjoy it right now. The liberty you experience as a single person, 
the full belly laughter that you hear from your toddler, the cooing of your baby, the night of intimacy with your spouse, the crisp fall air of your morning walk, the delightful ache in your feet as you lay in bed after a full day. All of that is God's prepackaged blessing for your joy to enjoy the moment he gives to you. Enjoy it right now. I lived in Southern California for a year when I was in college. And I had several friends who really enjoyed to surf. And they were stereotypical. They were the, the stereotypical SoCal beach bum. Bro, bro. And uh, so I went out surfing with them a couple of times. I was not very good at it. But there was one friend who was really good at it. He had been surfing for years. And so you could tell that he had caught more waves than, than I could ever imagine. And yet, I'm telling you, the look of utter bewildered excitement on his face every time he caught a wave and stood up was astounding. It was as if it was the very first time he had ever done it. He would get up and wear this face like, like, can you believe what I'm doing right now? Can you believe I'm actually on a wave? It's unbelievable every single time. Listen, if God is above the sun, then every joy we experience can be experienced like that. It's a personal gift with our name written on it. So we, we can pull up Spotify and not just listen half-heartedly. We can listen and say, music. I can actually hear melodies. It registers in my mind, and I, I recognize it as this ineffable, unexplainable, mysterious beauty. That's incredible. Color. Are you kidding me? God created the world and he didn't create it in grayscale. He totally could have, but he did not do that. He gave us color. Taste buds. You gotta be kidding me. He gave us taste buds. He, could, he didn't have to do that, but he did. He gave us taste buds to enjoy things like onyx coffee perfectly brewed or my wife's, uh, uh, sorry, my wife's chicken pot pie, the most delicious thing you will ever taste. Homemade from scratch, crust with creamy, delicious filling and the butter glaze on top of the laced topping. Worship, this right here, right now, are you kidding me? We get to do this every Lord's Day. We get to gather as God's people. We get to hear from God. We get to sing together. We get to confess our sins together. In just a few moments when we take communion, we're going to be transported to heaven together. Are you kidding me? So we should have that kind of perspective, but it's not just the joys that are prepared by God for us. If God is sovereign and he's above the sun and everything, everything is prescribed by God for us, then the pain, the trial, the difficulty, this too, is temporary, pre-packaged season arranged by God for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to pretend to enjoy suffering and hardship, but it does mean that we don't have to despair over it. We don't have to despair over it as if it were wasted. The affliction of your unwanted singleness, your affliction of infertility, your affliction of chronic pain, it's not a waste. 
It's not an accident. Paul says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He doesn't say this light and momentary affliction is here, but we also are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory as if the two were unrelated. No, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're vapor, they're hevel, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And we may never figure out what God is doing on this side of glory with all of the suffering that we experience. But knowing that God is sovereign and for us, we can endure seasons of trial with confidence that they are not accidents. God has good purposes for us with them. They are our lot. They're our lot. Let me close with this. None of this is possible in the abstract. I'm not inviting you to a mere shift of perspectives. To be invited into this way of thinking is to be invited into the love of God, into an ocean of his divine blessedness. And it's not strictly conceptual. It is deeply personal to be brought into God's love. And listen, there is no being brought into God's love without being brought into Christ. It's only when we accept the invitation of being brought into Christ that we will come to enjoy, we'll have the power to enjoy all of this fleeting hevel. What do I mean by that? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God the Father has no spiritual blessings for us outside of Christ. All of the blessings he has for us are in Christ. We gotta get in Christ if we want those spiritual blessings. And I firmly believe that one of those countless blessings that we receive in Christ is the power to receive all of this fleeting hevel as a gift from God. That's what chapter five, verse 19 of Ecclesiastes says. It calls it a gift from God. And so if that's true, and this power to enjoy life under the sun is one of the countless spiritual blessings we receive in Christ, then it is also true that this blessing, the power to receive this passing life as a gift, that blessing, like every other blessing, is unavailable outside of Christ. What does that mean for those of us who are weary of all this hevel of life? For those of us who find ourselves unable to enjoy God's blessings and unable to accept his toil. It means that our marching orders are not to try to muscle a change of perspective. Our marching orders are not to fundamentally to try to denigrate our earthly experiences, the joys or the pains. No, those are not our marching orders. Our marching orders rather are to maximize our vision of and affection for Christ so that we can come to enjoy all of this under the sun reality. We want to maximize our vision of and affection for Christ. We want to be able to have the same kind of perspective as that great 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said, my master has riches of happiness to bestow upon you. Believe me, my Lord can make you lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. 
There is no music like the music of his pipe when he is the shepherd and you are the sheep and you lie down at his feet. There is no love like his. Neither earth or heaven can match it. He goes on to say, I have more joy. I have had more joy in a half hour's communion with Christ than I have found in months of other comforts. I've had much to make me happy. Diverse successes and smiles of providence which have cheered and comforted my heart, but they are all froth on the cup, mere bubbles, the foam of life and not its true depths of bliss. To know Christ and to be found in him, oh, this is life. This is joy. This is marrow and fatness, wine on the lees well refined. My master does not treat his servants churlishly. He gives to them as a king giveth to a king. He gives to them two heavens, a heaven below serving him here and a heaven above delighting in him forever. We wanna have that kind of affection for Christ. So how do we do that? How can we know that this sovereign God is for us? We look no further than to Christ Jesus. Let me close with this passage from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? Very similar question to the question that Solomon asks at the end of chapter six, right? What are we to do? What do we say to these things? Here's what we say to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, including the gift, the power to enjoy all of this hevel? Who shall, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or hevel? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, that's who you are. That is your lot. And that's the God who has given you your lot, the joy, the struggle, the busyness, the tragedies, the blessing, whatever you, are, whatever you are enduring right now is the lot that this God has prepackaged for you. It's that God who is giving you this lot, which means you can trust him. You can dare to be grateful. And if you're not a Christian, this may be your story as well. It can become your story. Your past may be full of nothing but despair, but in Christ, your future can be bright. In Christ, you may become reconciled to the God who reigns above the sun and know that all of this under the sun life is a gift from him to you. And you're invited to take Christ's invitation in these next few moments as the believers here come to take this meal of communion. If you have not yet repented of your sin and held fast to Christ alone, don't take this meal. It wouldn't do you any good, right? This is a family meal, and before you can truly enjoy it, you need to be brought into the family of God. But as you see us taking this meal, 
I want you to receive our visible celebration as an invitation. I pray that you would see, as we celebrate this meal, the heart of Christ. And here's the heart of Christ. This is what he says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I would love to tell you about Christ. If you have any questions, I would be, I'll be standing off on the side here after communion and would love to speak with you and pray with you if you have any questions. And Christian, let me remind you of what a gift of grace this meal is. Now listen, on, on one level, when we come to this table, we are consuming hevel, consuming vapor. We're consuming something that is a fleeting substance. It's here one moment and gone the next. We will consume them. We will consume this bread and juice and then they will go away. We'll digest them and it's not permanent. So what we're consuming here in its substance is not permanent, but spiritually and by faith, these elements, these elements are, uh, these elements become so much more. They are emblems of Christ himself, his body and blood, which means that while these elements are temporary, by the Spirit's help, in faith in Christ alone, we participate here at this table with permanent things. The triune God nourishes our faith as he communes with us here at this table. So be grateful as you partake of this Thanksgiving meal together. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the believers to come down. You'll exit along this aisle to my left. Get your hand sanitizer. Come over here, receive the elements, uh, and then you'll return to your, to your seat along this aisle to my right over here. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, please meet us here at your table now. Commune with us and nourish our weak faith. We thank you for your body and blood and we thank you for the communion of the saints. Help us to discern your body in a way that honors you. We also ask that you draw your lost sheep into your fold. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Emmaus, I love you. Your good shepherd has set a table for you here in the wilderness. So come, eat, and drink, and be thankful. Come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.